Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. In this message, Doug Schmidt is going to teach on how to live in healthy biblical relationships. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, Kenosha City Church. It's so good to see you this morning and great to worship with you. I have to tell you that one song we sang, uh, The Goodness of God, it gets me every time. Just to reflect on the goodness of God, and I'm, a, I'm at the stage of life where I can look back and there's a lot in my rearview mirror of just seeing God's goodness and God's mercy. It was 40 years ago today, uh, my wife and I, we were, I was dean of students at a college seminary, and we were entertaining some of the student leadership for breakfast on, it was a Saturday morning, and graduation was, was the night before. And as we're having breakfast, my wife said, uh, I think I need to go to the hospital. Her water had broken, and we were off to the hospital, and she gave birth 40 years ago today to our daughter, Christy. And what makes it even more special is the doctors had told us that we would never, ever have any children, that our chances of having children on a scale of one to a hundred were zero. And in the goodness of God, in his mercy, he gave us an incredible, incredible uh, daughter named Christy. We have two other children as well in the goodness of God. I feel like I've known, I know King, uh, Kenosha City Church. I've known Andy and Allison now for, uh, since 2015 and I know Allison's parents. And it's just been so good to be here. I'm a big fan of Pastor Andy. Uh, over the years, I've, we've had lots of talks and I've gotten to know his heart his love for God and his love for you, and his passion to, to, to do something great for God in this place. And that's what I sense when I met with the men yesterday and talking before and after. You've caught that vision, and you really want to be used of God to do something really special here. And so my prayers are with you. Um, I want to encourage you and cheer you on. And I'm so delighted to be here this day for the first Sunday in your series of Save the Date or Relationships. You've probably heard of the guy who had, he was having problems with relationships. He just couldn't make anything work and he couldn't find answers and no one would tell him. So one day he just, he, he got on his phone and he, he just said, hey, Siri, I need help. I, it seems like every relationship I start stops and it hurts me. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I've tried everything and... Uh, can you help me, Siri? And the answer came back, this is Alexa. <laughs> so we want to look at relationships. And if you have your Bible uh, or device, would you join me in Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the Ephesian believers, and like uh, most or many of his letters, the First half of the book is theological in nature, where it's reminding us something of the greatness of God. And in, in, in Ephesians, it's the beauty of the church and the mystery of the church. And it, it develops, in, of course, chapter two. We've heard it referenced already today in a prayer about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we offered nothing to God. We were objects of his wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, saved us. And then it goes on. And then he, he closes that section off 
by chapter 4, verse 1, he begins the practical section. So the book of Ephesians is almost uh, evenly divided, the first half being theological, and the second half, what are we going to do about it? The practical applications and implications of the theology we just learned. And so he begins chapter 4, verse 1, he says, walk worthy of the profession in which you are called, or walk in balance. And it's beautiful verses that outline the nature and the purpose of the church in uh, verses 11 through about uh, 16. And then in starting verse 25 through verse 32, he gives all kinds of guidelines. I've summarized them in five, grouping some together, but there are many, many guidelines in that section that are so important for relationships. And as I, we develop those, we're gonna have to go pretty fast. At the same time, these are very, very simple to understand. There's, there's not one of them where I can say, this is a Greek word and it can show you something you've never seen before. You understand it. The difficulty is not understanding it, it's applying it. In, in large part, because when we, our, Adam and Eve fell in the garden, it so distorted the image of God in man that we have a difficult time understanding ourselves, uh, we have a difficult time understanding our, uh, each other, and we have a difficult time relating to God. And so all of that has to be worked through. But let me begin, not by reading verse 25, but drop down in the text, if you would, to verse 30. Because this verse seems totally out of place. With all these commands of things you should or should not do in relationships, Verse 30 is included, and you, think, you ask the question, why? Let me read the verse. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you've been, you are sealed for the day of redemption. I think the Apostle Paul, recognizing that he's sharing these principles for relational success with his readers, came to the realization that as, much, as hard as we work at horizontal relationships, horizontal relationships cannot be excluded from the vertical relationship. And so he's introducing us to the Holy Spirit. The whole, we have to understand who the Holy Spirit is and his role in our lives and in our relationships. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, we, we totally understand, we, we, we don't totally understand. We understand God through who he is, his existence and his attributes and his love. Uh, we understand Jesus. We have four gospels that were written about him from different perspectives. So we understand Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is often neglected or ignored. But he's the third person of the Trinity and he is a person. The Bible says he has done a lot for us. We, uh, even when we, we read and reflect on Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, how is it that we became alive? It was the Holy Spirit who breathed into us eternal life and changed us. The, that process is called regeneration. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit of the living God came to abide in us. So he lives in us at all times. We can never go anywhere without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us at all times. David, the, uh, the great writer and king of the Old Testament, once wrote, he said, Lord, let not your Holy Spirit depart from me. 
the Holy, and that's Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit uh, worked in, in the community of faith in the Old Testament different than in the New Testament. In the New Testament, he comes to live with us, and he's going to live with us until the day of redemption. Our spiritual salvation is complete. Our physical salvation is not. And that will be completed in the day of redemption when we see Jesus. But from the time of our salvation until the time where our physical redemption is complete, we have the Holy Spirit of the living God in us at all times. So we're never, ever alone. The implications of that are amazing. The Bible says he also baptizes us. By baptize, it means to place into. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. So the moment we came to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit baptized you into a family, the family of God. And all of a sudden, you had brothers and sisters all around the world. And you may be traveling on an airplane and talking to the person you, whom you don't know next to you and find out they're from India or Australia or Africa and find out that they know Jesus. And you realize that moment you're family and you have a lot in common in the person of Jesus Christ. He indwells us. He fills us. He controls us. He produces in us, according to Galatians chapter 5, the peaceable fruit of righteousness and joy. The, the list of nine things are there. That's what the Holy Spirit in us does. And so, but it also says here in the context, he's a person, and he says, the Apostle Paul reminds us, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed. That word sealed means he is the deposit within us. So God placed his son, his, his, the Holy Spirit within us as a deposit, meaning that we're his in its ownership and its security until the day of redemption. And so the Holy Spirit in us is a person, and as a person, he can experience emotions. And this verse would indicate that, that our actions on a horizontal level will either bring him joy or will bring him grief. And so that elevates this whole text, doesn't it? That these aren't just things we check off. I'm going to forgive, I'm going to use wholesome words, I'm going to be truthful. No, it's because those relationships that we have, that if we do them well, will bring joy to the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And if we don't, we'll bring grief. Okay, are you ready? We're going to go pretty fast. Okay, let's look at it. The first one, a simple one. Let's be honest with each other. Notice verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We live in a world where deceit and lying are pretty commonplace. And it appears that was the case in the first century as well in Ephesus. There, there was deceit, there was lying, there was probably some fake news going on at that time as well, and where they, were, um, they weren't honest with each other. We know that God is a God of truth. The book of Romans reminds us that God cannot lie. I remember, I just started in ministry, and um, we started a little church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and we had lots of kids' programs and so forth, and, and one little girl stopped coming. And so I called the house and said, you know, we miss you. Well, my dad won't let me come anymore. Well, why? 
He said, because the church said he's a liar. And I thought, I'm going to come by and see your dad. So I knocked on the door, Pastor Andy, in an apartment complex uh, just in in St. Paul, Minnesota. And this huge man opens up the door, doesn't have a shirt on. And And I introduced myself. And I thought, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. But what had happened is that in, in the children's church, they sang the song, Let God Be True and Every Man a Liar. And so this little girl, girl thought, God is true. Every man's a liar. My dad's a man. My dad's a liar. So it took some, some talking to him to help him to convince him that God is true. We're all liars. And, um, and he let his daughter come back to church. It's impossible for God to lie. The characteristics of God ought to be the life pattern for each of us, that we don't lie to each other, we don't deceive each other. Jesus, it's talked about of him in, in his own words. He said, I am the, you say it with me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And I know we live in a post-truth age where people say there's no absolute truth. There's your truth, there's my truth, there's your truth, and whatever's true to you is true. And the Bible says differently, that there is absolute truth and God is absolute truth. There is a right and wrong, and it's clearly uh, enunciated throughout the scriptures. And so we know that there is truth. It's going to become more and more difficult in the days ahead especially with uh, virtual reality, alternate reality, um, artificial uh, intelligence, to be able to discern, was that video really of that man or was that manipulated through artificial intelligence? Um, And so the challenges are before us, but we have to, in our relationships, speak truth to each other. We have to be people of truth and not deceitful. Truth, trust. And a relationship is based on truth. And truth is based on our ability to to trust each other with what is true, to speak truth. Here are some of the advantages I wrote down of being honest. Honesty inspires trust. Honesty brings clarity. Honesty promotes transparency and love. Honesty is a sign of strength in, in, in a good partner. Honesty holds each other accountable. Honesty helps you prioritize your actions and decisions. And honesty creates a safe place in your relationship. In this church, in your groups, in your Bible studies, in your marriages, in your families, may truth prevail. But also may that truth prevail in the context and through the vehicle of love. We have to speak the truth, and we have to live the truth. In fact, one of the goals of the church uh, that's talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, around verses uh, 15 and 16, he he uses the word truth not as a noun, but as a participle. And he says, truthing in love. And that means that our whole lives need to be characterized by truth. And so we're not deceitful, we're not deceiving in our relationships, we're honest, and yet we speak the truth with love.
And I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, well, like, that's easy to say, but what do I do when my wife, who's bought a new dress, tries it on and comes out and she says, does this dress make me look overweight? <laughs> and you were prepared for the question. And so you're like the hunter who all of a sudden sees you know, the deer and, you, and you, what do you do? You don't have time to pray about the answer. And uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to share with you how to do that, but actually Pastor Andy's gonna be covering that next week in his sermon. And so make sure you come and he'll deal with that. So you got it, right? We have to be truthful with each other. And that means in the little things. What's your name? Patrick? Patrick, if you say, Doug, I need you to pray for me. I've got this going on. And I'll say, Patrick, I'll pray for you. I have to be truthful and pray about that. What I have found, it's easy to say that. And I, as a pastor, I had to write those things down when I said, I'm going to pray for somebody. Because by the end of Sunday, I mean, everything's, you know. And I had to write them down and pray. And oftentimes, they'll pray right there. You have to be truthful when somebody says, how are you doing? And you say, fantastic. And I used to say that all the time years ago. People say, how are you doing? I'd say, great. One day somebody said to me, how can you always be great? And I said, well, you never know where great is on my scale. <laughs> and yet that's not a real honest answer, is it? We have to be able to say, and it all depends on the depth of relationship and so forth. If you ask me in the hallway, how am I doing? We don't know each other, so you don't want to hear my life story. But, uh, but I can say, you know, I've had better days. Would, would you pray for me? Thanks for asking, by the way. And would you pray that I'd have the joy of the Lord today? So we have to be honest, especially in this context of Kenosha City Church where you love each other, you're on this journey together, you're, you're, you faced opposition, you're going to face more oppositions the days ahead because the wicked one is not going to like what's happening here. And so you have to be close. You have to be prepared for battle, which means it presupposes that you're honest with each other. And so be honest and share. Pray for me. Uh, I need your help. I'll pray for you. So that's the first guideline. The second guideline, let me share with you, is found in, in verse number 26 and 27. Let's be quick to reconcile with each other. Uh, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We all know that God is, God can be angry. It's talked about that many times in the Old Testament especially, that God can be angry. The Bible says that God was angry, the cup of his wrath was filled. Uh, we find that metaphor used a number of times. And yet, um, God's anger is never mixed with anything. We, we look at anger and say, it's gotta be sinful because the only way we can interpret anger is through our own anger, through our own life experience. So we say, I get angry, I get sinful. Therefore, God gets angry, God gets sinful. No, God cannot sin. 
And this verse lets us know that we can be angry and not sin. And so Jesus was, I can, I can imagine when he came into the temple and they were, they turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. I can imagine Jesus didn't walk over the table and just, guys, clear this off because I've got a photo op here and I'm going to just, I'm going to tip this table over. I think, what do you think he did? Exactly. You've done it, haven't you? <laughs> he turned the tables over. He got their attention. Was he sinful in doing so? No. And so it's legitimate to get angry. There are things in our, in our lives that should cause us anger. When sin seems to triumph, that bothers me. When I see uh, children in our state, in Michigan, uh, recently, in the last few months, just made it legal for a baby to be killed right up until the time of birth. That makes me angry. It makes me angry when it appears as if people who've done wrong walk away without consequences. And that anger stirs up within me as it does you. When we see uh, injustice done, particularly the children and the young adults, that bothers me. And there's something within me that says there's a wrong, it's got to be made right. And I want to do it myself. How about you? I want a happy ending to this story and I can bring it about, you know. <laughs> and one of the hardest passages of Scripture for me to process is Romans chapter 12, where God says to me, I think with me in mind, Doug, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I have to trust a God who is just, who gets angry, but he does not sin. And I have to trust injustices to him. There are some cases where I can do what I can to change laws or to, to help, a, help victims and that kind of thing. But I have to trust God. Um, we have a man in our church who, who is, uh, he gets so fired up. And I've, I've talked with him. He's a good friend of mine. I've mentored uh, two of his three children. And um, when I see him, he's just, he's so, he's so angry at what's happening in the world. And one day we were talking in the parking lot, and I know he wasn't happy with me because I haven't taken some of the stands that he has publicly. And, um, and I just challenged him. I said, um, I share your pain and I share your anger, but you've allowed this to cause you to lose the joy of the Lord in your life. You've got to trust God to do what we can't do. And so the point here is be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Um, reconcile, resolve it. One German theologian once wrote, he said, the day of your anger should be the day of your reconciliation. In other words, be angry, but don't let it linger. But he, and he gives us caution, lest you give the devil opportunity. Again, that changes it from a simple horizontal relationship to your inviting the demonic world into that horizontal sphere, into a relationship. And so the wicked one can use that anger to produce malice, 
and, uh, and this desire for vengeance, and it can deepen. So the relationship can be so destroyed. So don't do that. Don't do that. So for husbands and wives, there are times where you're going to be angry. But it's really, but don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Somebody challenged us years ago before we were married, I think, and that is uh, always kiss before you go to bed at night. It's really, really hard to kiss somebody with whom you're angry. Try it. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. So that's number two. Are you with me yet? So these aren't hard, are they? These are, they're very, very, very easy to understand. If you're going to be angry, make sure it's righteous anger. Otherwise, you've got to do something with that anger. What are you going to do? There are three options with your anger. The first is to repress it. And that is deny it, to push it down. And if you do this day after day after day, what happens when you've done that? You explode. And a person who explodes with anger is not fun to be around. The second option is to express it. So the first is repress it. Second is to express it. And, and, and some of the people who do this are proud of that. They say, well, you, you always know where I stand because uh, I say it like it is. And I, when I do that, I feel better. Problem is, everybody else around there feels horrible, right? You've been there, you've seen it. So expressing it, repressing it, confessing it. Lord, I'm angry. And that anger has turned from righteous to unrighteous. And I'm harboring this sin and this anxiety, this, this uh, desire to, to get even. Forgive me. And he will. A third statement here, he, he says, let's be positive contributors to others. Notice verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. I remember growing up with the, the King James Version, and I love to change the commas, the punctuation in the King James. It would go something like this. Let the thief, um, uh, let the thief steal, steal. No longer let him labor with his hands. So that's not what the text means. Let the thief no longer steal. And it goes on to say here, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so they may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, the context is taking what's not yours. And how does that work in relationships? The emphasis here in the text to me seemed in, in this whole context is that we have to be able to, to work, to earn, to give. Uh, that's re, uh, re, uh, emphasized again in 1 Thessalonians. To work hard, to earn, so that we can give. Uh, and I remember the, getting a telephone call one morning uh, in my office, and it was from a man named Bruce in our church. And he said, Doug, can you come over to the house? I said, well, yeah, is it, is it urgent? He said, yeah, it's not urgent, but it's really important. Can you come over? So I said, well, I've got to run some errands. I've got to do this. I'll, be, I'll be over at 10 or 11 o'clock this morning. So I knocked on his door, walked his nice ranch house, very, um, the three-bedroom ranch, you've seen him. I knocked on the door, went into his entryway, and he gives me uh, a silver dollar. 
I thought, this is strange. And so he said, well, come with me. And so we walk into his kitchen, and on his kitchen table are these wooden boxes with these plastic cylinders filled with uncirculated silver. Kennedy halves and uh, walking liberties and all of this, all of it uncirculated. And I said, well, what's the story here? He said, the, the story is, is, I was told that in, in the economy, and this, this, is, this story is 25 years old, maybe a little longer. He said, I, I was told that the dollar is going to fail and I need to, I need to save silver. So I started saving silver. I bought silver and there are boxes of this now. And he I said, so, so you've saved silver? He said, yeah. He said, but the Lord's convicted me that I've put my trust in these boxes and not in him. And so I thought, it's good. And he said, so I want you to take this silver and get it out of my house. I said, what do you want me to do with it? He said, give it away. I said, how do you want me to give it away? He said, I don't know. I'd rather not see it just go into a fund but let's help people. Just give it away. And all those, Andy, all those seminary warning bells went off in my mind. And I thought, I said, well, listen, let me, let me think about and pray about this for a week. And I'll get back and let's talk about it. He says, you can think and pray all you want. And you can come back in a week. But you're taking the silver today. So it, it took two of us to carry those, uh, a box we put it in the, in the trunk of my car. The car went down. And I drove it home and, and put it in a little a library in a, a um, closet off the library. Put it in there, covered up with blankets. I tried to make sure I covered myself and talked to the chairman of our finance committee and elders and told him what was happening. And I went back and talked to him and affirm what God was doing in his life, but also uh, now I've got a problem. I've got silver in my house that I need to get rid of. And he said, well, just, get, just give it away. And I said to him, I said, how about, how about if we, we, we cash it in, for, for in dollars, um, and then we pray about it and do this together? And he said, fine. So we began to pray. We cashed it in much more than the face value. And we began to pray that God would lead us to the people who needed it. And he and I had both served in the Dominican Republic on a short-term trip. And there we met a guy who had been ministered for 42 years with his wife. And they were old now and in poor health. And they were moving back to Canada and moving into a double wide. And they'd never had... Um, new living room furniture. And she, that was her goal. That's her desire, is to have new living room furniture. So we prayed and said, why don't we do that? So we did, and it was over the next year and a half that gave away all this money to bless people. There were one occasion or a year after that, the guy came back and said, I want to pay you back. He said, you can't. That's a gift. Fast forward to about three weeks ago. Barnabas Ministry is helping a pastor renovate his house. He doesn't get any salary uh, from the church. He started the church 
uh, about two years ago. Um, he gets nothing, and the house is needed a lot of work. And so we, people donated, and a friend put a new furnace in, and ductwork, and uh, carpet is going to be going in in the next couple of weeks. But it needed a new kitchen, or it needed a, a kitchen. Um, and so I contacted this man, Bruce's son, uh, actually and his two brothers, who own a, a kind of a high-end, they build custom homes. And I just said to John, I said, John, we need, to, we need to put a kitchen in this house. If I find a used kitchen where a family's been upgrading to a newer one, would your, would your teams put that in? He said, absolutely not. I said, well, you can help, can't you? He said, we'll put a brand new kitchen in. And I thought, how do boys, now in their 30s and 40s, work, earn, and give? Because they saw dad do it. And they watched. We need to work, we need to earn so that we can give. That's what happens in relationships. It's wonderful. The, um, there's so many stories I'd love to tell you, and we don't have time. Um, what had happened is that in 2009, in our area, it was 2008, 2009 is a horrible time financially for our economy. Our church alone had lost about 800 of our people who'd moved out of state to find jobs. And we decided at that time to do a, um, a, a series on generosity. It made no sense. It made no sense. We had so many other people that were either unemployed or underemployed. It was a three-week series at the end of June of 2009, and I wanted to preach it in such a way that we modeled corporately what I wanted our people to practice privately, and that is work to earn to give. And so I did the first message on a Sunday morning from the Old Testament about the corners of the fields and how we're supposed to leave the corners of the fields for the sojourners and, and be generous, and they could determine based on the crop how big the corners should be. And I said at the end of that first Sunday, if you don't have a job, would you go to the back in the lobby and there's a table and we just want to bless you. And people would, they didn't have jobs, they went back and we had a, a letter from me and a, an envelope along with a gift card for 50 or $60 to Myers or Target or something like that. And we gave away $20,000 in gift cards that day um, at our Troy campus. But I also said that day, if you, if you have a utility bill, you can't pay. Um, water, electric, or gas, not cable. Um, bring that bill in this week to the church office. And uh, I can't make any promises, but, and by the way, if you, have a, if you have the means of paying somebody else's bill, would you bring your checkbook next week? and do that. So that week at the Troy campus, 
$25,000 of bills came in. And the next week at our four services in the Troy campus Saturday night, uh, people paid bills. Uh, Sunday morning, our tra traditional service, people paid bills. And all the bills were paid. So I went to the, the next two services, the 10 o'clock and the 1130, which are the, the big services. And I just said, uh, folks, good news and bad news. Good news is all the bills are paid. The bad news is that we're going to still have more need. So if you came today with a feeling of generosity, ready to write a check, and if there's any chance that feeling of generosity could leave you, write a check before you leave. <laughs> so again, $40,000 more came in to meet each other's needs. Uh, that, at the end of that certain second Sunday of preaching, I just said, you know, next week, we're going to close off this series on generosity. But would you, uh, would you, if, if you don't, if you know somebody who doesn't have a job and they're not already part of a good church, invite them to come with you because just, we just want to bless them. And that week, I would, I'd said, the next week I said to our congregation, you know, if, you're, if you don't have a job, it doesn't matter if you've been here for um, 50 years or if this is your very first Sunday, down the hallway here, there's a classroom, and go there, and we just want to bless you. When people came, went into that classroom, I never, never got there that Sunday morning. When people went in there, uh, people told me, they said people came in, in either in tears or they left in tears. People were there to pray with them. People came to know Jesus that day. But we gave them an envelope, and in the envelope was a check for $500. It's not going to solve all their problems, but we wanted to tell them we loved them. Work, earn, give. Work, earn, give. Remember the whole purpose of the series was to, to demonstrate corporately what we wanted people to practice individually. And here's the thing. All through the years of our existence as a church, every time we had communion once a month, we would take an offering for a benevolence fund, for people primarily in the church, but not, not exclusive to that, their needs were met. Sometimes food, sometimes mortgage payments, sometimes rent payments, sometimes utility bills. June of 2009 was the last time at the Troy campus we took a benevolence offering. Ever since then, people have just met each other's needs, or they'll write a check directly to the, the deacon fund or whatever. And that's what's meant, folks, we have to be, in every relationship, there are givers and there are takers. And those of us in the body of Christ, we all have to be givers, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in a group, whether it's in church, we have to be, we have to be givers and introduce more to that relationship. I'd like to talk more about that, but let me just touch on a couple more. Are we okay yet, Pastor Andy, for... Another hour or so. <laughs> Let me go quickly here. You've heard that before. Um, let's encourage each other with uplifting words. Notice verse 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, the word corrupt there just means it's used for the deteriorating fruit. 
It's, it's, it's rotten, it's putrid, and don't let anything like that come out of your mouths. Obviously, this relates to vulgarity. It relates to um, the wrong kind of joking. Um, but but, it, but it, as well, it could relate to anything that doesn't build up. Is what we're saying, build up, building up. And it could be something as simple as a husband saying at the dinner table at night, honey, you make the best lamb chives. These are really good. They're not like mom's. Not lifting up. Not building up. Or you suppose you could call my mom and get her recipe for blueberry pancakes. Those words do not build up. They don't at all. So use words that build up, which means we have to be slow to speak and, and quick to hear. We have to read body language. We always have to be asking the question, am I saying this to benefit the other person and will it benefit him or her? And so using positive words that always build up, filled with grace, they have to be timely. I remember uh, just reading the story recently of a, of a, um, a professor at a well-known university who had, who had been in the business world, he was from India, and he, he's sharing the story. He says, the day, the day my, my picture was on the cover of Fortune magazine, my company, IPO, came out that day, and I was set for life. He said, I went home at the end of the day only to find my wife had left me. And he said, what hurts the most is the last thing I remember saying to her that morning is why can't the rice be hot? Why do I have to eat cold rice? Our words are so important. I remember a baseball manager for the Detroit Tigers many years ago just ripped into a reporter and, and his team and when he was asked about it the next day he said he, he, he kind of pushed it away and said, they were just words. They're just words. And we who've lived a, more than a decade or two understand that the power of words to destroy are greater than the power of a sword. Things like, you'll never amount to anything. You're good for nothing. One of the Sad, sad conversation I had with a man once. His, he had come home to find out his wife had died. Uh, just, she went to rest in the afternoon and died in bed. And I spent the next few days with him and prepared him for a memorial service. I remember saying to him, him saying to me, he said, I would give everything I had for one more minute to share with her. We have those minutes today. Let's use our words to build up, to encourage, to inspire, to share our love and to share our encouragement. It may be words, it may be written. Write them down, say them. Uh, they have to be words of encouragement. And that builds up relationships. One last one here. Let's forgive each other. Verse 31 and 32, you could have about four or five different uh, action points here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
as God in Christ forgave you. Let me just touch on the forgiving. We need to forgive each other. In relationships, there's going to be hurt. And one of, the, one of the challenges of relationships, if you don't want to get hurt, you don't get in relationships. But every one of you know the, 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 the risk of relationship is worth it because you love each other, you care about each other. But in the process, you may hurt each other. And then, the, the, then there's the need to forgive. And so in a marriage relationship, uh, you've, you've hurt each other. Who takes the first step? Ladies, do you want to vote? Men, do you want to vote? Who takes the first step? You do. I remember my wife and I early on, um, there would be a misunderstanding. And there would be silence. And the silent treatment, I've never quite understood the psychology behind it. It's like, I'm going to withhold from you that which you need the most, my words. And so we go silent. You've read that silence is golden. Well, oftentimes, silence is just yellow. We're just afraid. We're scared. And one of us would say to the other, oh, I'm sorry if you are. And that would break the ice to bring forgiveness and restoration. Why should we forgive? Because of the risk of unforgiveness are too high. We hurt each other, we give the devil opportunity. Um, and the biggest risk that I see come from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter six, that if we don't forgive, we'll not be forgiven. That's reason enough. But how do we forgive? It was early in my first pastorate on a Saturday morning and I got a telephone call from a, a couple. They were in our church, they'd both gone to Bible college um, they wanted to serve the Lord, but the realities of life and paying bills forced them both to get uh, jobs uh, in, a, in, a, in a factory. And they said, we need to talk with you. I said, how soon? They said, uh, how about now? So I said, I'll meet you in church at the church building in 15 minutes. And I sat at my desk, and this young couple came in, and they were carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. They, they were working in the same factory, but in different shifts. She was working first shift, he was working second, so they met in the parking lot. Um, and she had sinned deeply against her husband. Um, I'll not share the details, but shared so deeply, um, beyond imagination. And everybody in the factory knew ab about it, what was going on except her husband. And the night before, after he got off work, she shared with him, and they'd been up all night. And so fresh with him, and she's so overcome with her guilt. And I've learned in, in counseling, and never ask a couple at that point, are you, are you, are you ready to reconcile this? Because they're not. But I, I asked him, are you ready to work at this? And her husband gave the answer. He says, yes, I am. And she blew up. Overcome with her own sin and the guilt and the shame of it all, she just yelled and she said, how could you? How could you do this? How could you forgive me after all I've done for you? And I'll never forget the answer of this man. 
He says, because Christ forgave me. It was that theological truth that allowed him to grow in a relationship that would seem humanly beyond repair. They found the grace of God to forgive and to move on. These are simple principles, folks, that we have to apply to life. They don't come natural to us. Therefore, the application is going to be challenging. And so don't beat yourself up, but catch yourself. Ooh, that wasn't healthy. That wasn't encouraging. I'm sorry. I could have worded that better. I want you to know I forgive you. So take these principles. And some of them you can check off already and say, I'm pretty good at that one. And perhaps one of them you say, need a little work here. But allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, to bring you along and to challenge you and to change you into what he wants you to be. But these are horizontal relational principles that are very, very important, but they're, they're fueled and motivated by the vertical, the Holy Spirit of the living God within us. And maybe you're today and you just say, I've been coming to the church for a while, maybe this is my first Sunday, but I'm not sure I know what you're talking about with that vertical relationship. I can't say for sure that I know Jesus yet. May I encourage you that the worship leaders have been singing about it this morning and we've been hearing about it and that is the, the, the need to know Jesus and to know him personally. To understand that he is the son of God who because of God's love came to this earth in the form of a, a baby and lived and grew, and grew in every way and he taught and he performed miracles. He showed people that he wasn't just a man, he was God. And then in the in the central point of all human history. He went to the cross, and in those moments, God placed on him the sins of the entire world, mine and yours, so that we might have a life eternal and never have to spend one second of eternity apart from him. That's most important, folks. Um, do you know Jesus? If you do, rejoice in it. If you don't, may this be the day of your salvation. There'll be people here at the close of the service who'll be happy to share with you how you can know him for sure. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we're just so thankful for the fact that we don't have to do life without a guidebook and without guidelines. I'm thankful for, for this book. I'm thankful for Jesus. Father, work in our lives in such a way that our relationships in the church in our homes, and our marriages, would only get better and stronger for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.